My name's Tom Henderson. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a husband to Laura. I'm a father to Isaiah and Chase. And I have, me and my family, we've been attending Central for over 13 years. And for the last couple of years, I've served on the elder board, which is an honor to do, and it's an honor to bring uh, the word to you this morning. In addition to that, I'm also the founder of ResGen and the ResGen Men's Summit. As Ben said, two weeks from yesterday, 1,100 men are going to gather in this place and at 15 simulcast sites around the country to go deep, to hear from communicators about what does it look like to be a man of courage in our faith, in our marriage, in our relationship with our kids, in the workplace. And I want you to be one of those 1,100 men. 1,100 men. Don't wait until the last week, okay, because it's already, I mean, already 60% of the tickets are already gone. And you know, men, we wait till the last minute to do everything, okay? By the way, Valentine's Day is coming up in a month as well. So, guys, just so you're aware. But I want you to be a part of it, okay? You can, you can register online, or uh, Jeff, my office manager, is out there, and he can help register you as well if you'd rather do it here in person. But uh, we want you to be a part of that. All right, well, I'm going to get into the message this morning, but before I do, I actually want you to play a part in it, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to share with the person next to you, and I know if all the introverts are going, see, this is why I didn't want to come to church this morning, but th- I'm going to give you a layup, okay? I'm going to give you a softball. This, way, this, is what, this, is what, this is what I'm asking you to talk about. What was your favorite toy when you were a kid, okay? Any of us can talk about that, so share with the person next to you, what was your favorite toy when you were growing up? I'm only giving you 30 seconds, so make quick work of it. Go ahead. All right, all right, and I hate to break it up. I hate to break it up because I see the smiles as you're sharing. Because even those of us that don't like talking to other people, really, when we start talking about our favorite toys, there's just something that makes us light up because we picture ourselves in the living room putting those Legos together. We picture ourselves on the playground doing whatever we do. We just, we, the memories start flowing back. Now, I was a child of the 70s and 80s, and we had great toys back then. Okay, a lot of them were dangerous because that was the day and the age where Mattel and Hasbro, all the wizards that made the toys, they would get together in their little lab and they'd say, how do we make something fun and dangerous, but mostly dangerous? Okay, all of them had small parts that you could swallow. All of them had like sharp parts that could cut you. That was just the way toys were. I grew up in a day and age where we would go to the playground and we'd slide down a metal slide in the summer and then need skin grafting because we chose that, made that choice. Some of you still have scars to prove it. We don't need to see them, okay? That's all right. But we had great toys when I was a kid. And I mean, yes, I, I talked about, like, like, when I think about my toys, I think about, like, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. Really love those guys. The pogo ball, because the pogo stick wasn't dangerous enough. We're like, hey, let's have kids bounce on a ball. Let's see how that works. Um, Cabbage Patch Kids. Remember those? Of which I may or may not have had one. His name may or may not have been Matthew Todd, Okay. Men, don't judge. I saw how many of you were at the Barbie movie wearing pink, okay? (laughs) But my favorite, my favorite toy, I would have to say, was really these guys. Transformers. Did anybody say Transformers? Do I have anybody, any friends that said Transformers? Yeah, a few of you. Oh, man, I love Transformers. There were so many cool things about Transformers, starting with the theme song. Remember it? Transformers, more than meets the eye. Wait for it. I heard it's coming. Your moments right now. Your moments right now. Transformers. Bro, that was your chance. I mean, that was it. I, I, do you want a mic? Okay, listen, let's help him out. Let's try it again. Transformers, more than meets the eye. Transformers. 
Okay, that was better. That was better. Left side, not strong side this morning. That's okay. All right. But, no, transfer, there's just so, so much cool, coolness about them. The other thing about Transformers that's so cool is that they've really stood the test of time, even though the movies have gotten progressively worse as they've, as they've gone on. Right? I mean, the first one was amazing. And then afterwards, you're like, why do I keep giving into the temptation to watch the next one? You're like, what? it's like a dog returning to its vomit. Why do I keep going back to watch another Transformers movie? But seriously, they stood the test of time, and that I could tell with my kids. I grew up in a home where my mom, actually, she would have in a box when I got done playing with them to kind of preserve how good they were. I don't know if you ever grew up in a, in a home like that, but, but, but I still had a lot of my old Transformers. One of the greatest joys that I had was, was transforming those Transformers with my kids, and my kids loved them, especially my five-year-old son, Isaiah. Now, he's 22 now, but at the time when he was five years old, he would, he would play Transformers all day long. He'd sit in the living room. He'd transform back and forth and forth and back, and I loved doing it with him. But sometimes he would take it to the next level, and he would actually become a Transformer. I'll never forget one Saturday morning, I'm sitting there eating my Cheerios, probably, honey nut Cheerios, probably, and he comes up, he's like, Daddy, watch this. There, I'm transformed. Do you like what I've become? I looked at him and I'm like, no, son, that's dumb. <laughs> no, I didn't do that. Of course I didn't do that. Some of you are like, can you call social services retroactively? Is that possible? No, I didn't say that. I said, oh, son, I love what you've become. Now, the dictionary gives a couple of definitions for transform that I like. The first one is this, to change markedly the appearance or the form of, which is kind of what a transformer, the toy is. But the second one, and which I think really applies to the story that we're going to be looking at today, is to change the nature, the function, or the condition of, to convert. And this morning, we're going to look at what I, as well as many others, would say is one of the most amazing transformation in all of Scripture. It's the transformation or the conversion of a man named Saul. And we're going to read about it in Acts chapter 9. But before we do that, I want us to first take a quick look as to who this Saul guy is or was prior to his transformation. Now, I will tell you, I'm going to go through this pretty quick. All right, I'm talking like Talladega Nights, Ricky Bobby, Shake and Bake kind of quick. Okay? So buckle in and stay with me, and we'll all arrive at the same destination. You ready? All right, here we go. Saul was from a Jewish family, he was a Roman citizen, and he was part of a group known as the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were like the religious elite, okay? And they were known for being super religious and reverent and for teaching that every single Jew should ab observe every single one of the over 600-plus laws in the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And because of this, all this resulted in them being known as arrogant, controlling, super self-righteous because of how they were pleasing to God, because of how they obeyed all the rules. Well, at least they obeyed the rules that they wanted to. Why do I say that? Well, because Jesus did. You see, in the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 23, Jesus tells his followers that while, yes, they should follow everything that the Pharisees say because they do indeed, those words do indeed come from the Word of God, they should not do what they do because they do not practice what they preach, and further, because they really just do it for show. And then throughout the rest of chapter 23, Jesus goes on to, tell the, to tell, um, call the Pharisees hypocrites, not once, not twice, not three times, but six times, 
and also calls them snakes, a brood of vipers, blind guides, blind men, and blind fools. So needless to say, Jesus was not on their Christmas card list. And neither were the followers of Jesus that were choosing to follow him and his teaching instead of theirs. In fact, their hatred grew towards Jesus and his followers so much that they did everything they could to discredit, to persecute, and to get rid of them. And Saul was one of the most zealous Pharisees of them all. Now, we first hear Saul's name actually three times before Acts chapter 9. In Acts 7.58, we're told that as witnesses and participants in the stoning of Stephen, who was the very first person to ever die for their faith uh, in Christ, laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Following that, in, in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, after Stephen breathes his last breath, Luke, who's one of the followers of Jesus and who wrote the book of Acts, writes, and Saul was there giving approval to his death. And then in a couple verses later, in chapter 8, verse 3, while people were mourning Stephen's death, we're told that Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. So that's who Saul was, okay? Not exactly a good dude, right? So now that we're done with that little intro, let's look at Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 22, and we're going to do that in sections. And hopefully by the end of our time here, we'll understand what can we learn from the transformation of Saul, and what can we apply to our lives? So that said, let's start in verse 1 of Acts chapter 9. This is what the word says. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, Jesus, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So the first thing that we learn in the story of Saul's transformation is that Jesus pursues us. Jesus pursues us. Saul's transformation, friends, takes, solely, takes place solely because of Jesus. Think about it. Was Saul looking for Jesus? No, right? No, he was looking for Jesus' followers. But here's the thing. Even though Saul wasn't looking for Jesus, guess what? Jesus was looking for him. You see, when Saul left for Damascus, he left with a plan. And that plan was to wreak havoc on the church. But God had a different plan. And that plan was for Jesus to show the depths of his grace, which basically means giving us something that we don't deserve, and also show his relentless pursuit of mankind. A pursuit that, that began way back in the beginning when a man named Adam and a woman named Eve, who after disobeying the one rule, the one rule that God had for them, went running to hide behind the bush in shame. But that disobedience and the shame that came from their decision didn't keep God from looking for his prized creation and getting them to come out of hiding. And ever since then, Jesus has been doing whatever he needs to do in order to get our attention so that we too will come out of hiding or have the scales peeled from our eyes. 
Sometimes that's, that's through a, a radical or like a, a radical means or like a spectacular fashion like, like we experience here in, in, the, in the life of Saul or, or maybe through like the miracles that we can read about in the Gospels when Jesus walked this earth that you can read about on your own. Other times it's through more of a, of a quiet experience like we can read about in John chapter 4 when Jesus comes up to a woman at the well and asks for a drink of water in the middle of the day and then the conversation ends with her saying, him saying, now go and sin no more. Maybe for you, it was through the pain of a divorce, a battle with an illness, or, or the loss of a job, and Jesus brought the comfort and peace that your soul was longing for, and you knew at that moment that he truly does love you, and you need a Savior in your life. Maybe for you, it's through more of a, of a joyous occasion, like the birth of a child, or a wedding, or a meaningful conversation with a friend, or maybe perhaps it was at a youth camp. Or at a conference like it was with me when I was a teenager when God got my attention. Regardless of how it happens, though, Jesus always meets us wherever we're at and in a way that is specific to the way that we need to be met. And at that moment, he tells us that he loves us, that he has an unbelievable plan for our lives, and that he's been pursuing a relationship with us since the very beginning of time when we began our life when we were born. A couple of years ago, a friend of mine sent me a podcast containing an interview uh, with an NBA player by the name of Jonathan Isaac. And although the, uh, the uh, interviewer wanted to focus on Jonathan's, uh, his reluctance or his, his lack of kneeling during the national anthem, even though the, the rest of his team did kneel, um, Jonathan instead, throughout the conversation, kept coming back again and again and again how to, went to, the, to the time where when, when he had met Christ, he wasn't looking for Jesus at all, just the, just the same way that Saul wasn't looking for Jesus. Now, he wasn't out like persecuting Christians the way that Saul was, but he was living the NBA lifestyle, loving the NBA lifestyle, living with, with all the money and the girls and the fame and the party and all those other things that came along with being a young dude in that. But he found out that Jesus was pursuing him, and he found out in the most random of ways, and it was in an elevator in his hometown when a guy came up to him and he said, if you want to be great, then you need to have Jesus in your life, which is the exact words that Jonathan needed to hear because that's what he was focused on was being great, which leads us to the second thing that we learn from Saul's transformation, and that's that God uses people to help us throughout our journey. Now, it's long, so we're going to keep that up there for you, but God uses people to help us throughout our journey. Now, obviously, that includes the ones that help facilitate our introductions to Christ, like, you know, telling us who Jesus is but it also includes so many others, like those who helped lay the foundation even long before we were even aware that there was a Christ. And then, of course, there are those of course, that, that continue to encourage us and disciple us as we grow in our relationship with Jesus. In the case of Saul, God didn't necessarily use people to bring him to, to him. Did he? No, uh, he, Jesus just kind of showed up, just kind of showed up and made his presence known. But he sure did use people afterwards, starting with the guys that he was traveling with. Let's pick up our story in verse 7. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus, where for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. 
You know, one of the things that, that I love about God, and let's be real, there's a lot to love about God, right, is how often he uses people that you'd never expect to accomplish his plan. With Saul, that started with his travel buddies, the men who were on the road to Damascus with Saul and who had the same original mission that he did. So as I think about it, that I, I, wonder, I wonder what was going on in those dudes' head when they could hear everything that Saul heard, but yet they couldn't see what Saul saw. All they knew was that after the experience was all said and done, their leader was left blind. So what do they do? Well, they pick him up by the hand, and they begin to lead him towards their original destination, probably assuming that once Saul was nursed back to health, they could get back to their original mission of capturing Christians. Think about the remainder of that journey. Like, what was that like? Right? I mean, that had to have been awkward. The scripture says that, that like, when it was happening, they were speechless. But my guess is, is that when they, were, when they were journeying down the yellow brick road towards Oz, hoping that they could get an answer once they got there, they're probably like, you know, just like, there had to be a lot of questions. Like, did you guys see that? Like, was that weird? I mean, I think it was weird. We don't, we don't know what that conversation was. We don't know how long, how, how long it took them to get to Damascus. But what we do know is that they were kind of at a loss. But we, we do know once, what they, happens when they get there. Because Scripture tells us that for three days, Saul remained blind and didn't eat or drink anything. Which again makes me wonder, what did those other three guys do? And I know that's not the point of this story, but when I read the scripture, one of the things I always try to think about is like, what would it be like to be there? Like, what would it like to actually be in the story and experience what they're experiencing from different viewpoints? If any of you are struggling to kind of get in the scripture outside of this hour, um, because you just don't understand it, try putting yourself in the scripture. Like, what would it be like to actually be those dudes? Because I'm just telling you, it's, it's probably like, man, we're waiting here for three days. They didn't have social media, remind you. So it's not like they took a picture uh, and then were able to post it and say, just waiting for Saul to be nursed back, nursed back to health, hashtag bored, right? I mean, no, they just had to sit and wait. Scripture doesn't tell us what they were doing, but Scripture does tell us what, Paul was, what Saul was doing. And that was, just, that was just fasting, praying, and being prepared to meet someone that God was sending to him that would end up playing a huge role in his faith journey, a man named Ananias. Let's pick it up, verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, I want you to go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he has to suffer in my name. And we don't know a ton at this point about who Ananias were, uh, who, who he was because the word only tells us that he was a disciple. Okay? He was a follower of Jesus. But if you fast forward to chapter 22, when Saul is officially known as Paul, and he's telling other people his story, his testimony of how he came to Christ, he describes Ananias not just as a disciple, but as a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. Do you know what that means? 
That means that he was the perfect person for God to use to go to Saul. Why? Because he had the relationship and street cred that would be necessary to go to a bunch of people that were totally going to be suspect of anything that, went, that had gone on in Saul's life. Of course, Ananias was suspect at first as well, right? And rightfully so. I mean, as far as he knew and everybody else knew, Saul was there to capture Christians. So in his mind, this little request that the Lord was making was basically like saying, hey, listen, I want you to go turn yourself into the police. Which is why he was a little bit tentative and was like, um, so Lord, let's, let's get this straight. You understand. Okay, I mean, listen, I know you know everything, but you understand that, uh, that this dude that you're asking me to go to has the papers and the authority to arrest us, right? So are you sure about this? To which the Lord's like, yeah, man. He's my chosen instrument to carry my name. So I best, you best be getting after it. So think about what's going on in Ananias' mind right now. Put yourself, put yourself in that cat's sandals. Think about all the thoughts that are bombarding his brain. Him? Him. He's the chosen one. He's the Neo in this Matrix movie. Lord, you must be tripping, right? I mean, I guarantee that, I guarantee that was going on in his head. But yet even though those were his thoughts that were bombarding his brain, he does it. Verse 17. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. I love how Ananias, at least in how I read the story, isn't timid when he goes to the house. It's not like he goes to the front door and lightly taps, and it's like, hey, Saul, buddy, <laughs> it's your friend Ananias. Please don't kill me, right? No. No, he, he walks right in, and he calls him brother. And then in a gesture of love, he lays hands on him. Think about how, much, how powerful this must have been for Saul. I mean, he, he knew who he was. He knew his reputation, but the first words out of this man's mouth, a man who three days prior he would have arrested, captured, and imprisoned, were Saul, my brother. I love a commentator writer, John L. Stott, says about this. He says, I never fail to be moved by these words. They may well have been the first words which Saul heard from Christian lips after his conversion, and they were words of fraternal welcome that must have been music to his ears. Friend, Saul was an arch enemy of the church, but yet he was shown grace by Ananias. He was welcomed as a brother. He was fed and baptized, and he was received as a member of the family of God. This is why University of Glasgow professor William Barclay calls Ananias one of the forgotten heroes of the Christian church. You know why? Because, because if he wouldn't have had the trust that he had in God, and if he wouldn't have had the courage to obey him, who would have known what would have happened to Saul and subsequently the ministry he was able to start? Question for you this morning. Who's been Ananias in your life? Who have been the people in your world that helped you, that laid a foundation of faith in your life, 
that have helped you understand who Jesus is and the plan that he has for your life, who helped lead you to Christ, who's helped you grow in Christ, who have helped you along the way. For Jonathan Isaac, the NBA player, it was a stranger in the elevator that actually eventually became his pastor. For me, it was men like Reed DeVries, Alan Keesbo, Dan Larson, Chris May, and so many others. How about for you? Who's been the Ananiases in your life? Think about those names right now. And as you do, let me ask you this. When was the last time you thanked them for playing that role in your life? When was the last time that you put a pen to paper and wrote a thank you note for them being Ananias in your life? When was the last time you sent a text message their, that way, their way? What, what, when was the last time that you, that you called them and just said, hey, I just want you to know, thank you for being an example of Jesus in my life that's helped me understand that I have a Savior who loves me, who helped me understand that there's a Savior that can help restore my marriage, that can help as I pray for my kids and figure out how to parent in this crazy world, as I figure out how to live out my mission that God has for me in my workplace, in whatever I do and however I spend my hours. When was the last time you thanked them? Let me ask you this. Who can you be Ananias for? Who can you be Ananias for? At Central, we talk a lot about our Oikos, right? The 8 to 15 people that God has strategically placed in our world to reach and to make an impact for Christ. Last week, Pastor Jeff talked about the Oikos card, writing down those names. Who can you be Ananias for? Because here's the reality. Every single person, every single person, is, is, is there, and no one is too far gone for Jesus to reach, which is, the third, which is the third thing that we find out in our story, that no one is too far gone to reach. In verses 13 and 14, Ananias basically said, there is no possible way that Saul could change. There is no possible way that he could become a Christian. Besides, that dude is dangerous, right? That's how Ananias felt. He felt that there's no way that he could be saved. But that dangerous dude, he did give his life to Jesus, didn't he? And he went on to lead countless people to Christ and write over half the New Testament, which, of course, continues to reach and disciple people today, including us. So let me ask you this. Who do you know that if you were honest with yourself, that you would say is too far gone? Who would you say that, that as you look at them, you say, man, there is no way that Jesus could ever save them. They party too much. They have too much money. They, they, enjoy, they enjoy the world too much. They just, there, there's no way that, that they would ever want a, a Jesus in their life because they're, they're just too far gone. Ananias felt that way at first. But Saul proves and it's such a great example that no one is too far gone for Jesus to save. And you know who shares that? Paul. Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1. This is what he says. He says, this is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. I love the way that Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of Scripture called The Message, he puts it. He says, here's a word you can take to heart and depend on. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. I'm proof, public sinner number one, of someone who could never have made it apart from sheer mercy. And now, 
he shows me off evidence of his endless patience to those who are right on the edge of trusting him forever. Friends, what if we looked at people and instead of seeing them as someone who is too far gone for Jesus to reach, what if we would instead look at them and say they're right on the edge of trusting God forever? How would that change our mindset? How would that change our perspective? It's if instead of like seeing someone that we would normally say, there is no way, we instead say, oh, they're right on the edge. They're right on the edge of trusting Jesus forever. And I can be a person. I can be one that can help them take the step over that ledge. Say this with me. Say, no one is too far gone. Okay, now say it with a little more gusto. Say, no one is too far gone. Say, no one is too far gone. Now, before I close, there's one more thing. There's one more thing that we learn from the transformation of Saul, and that's that we are all to be engaged in the mission. We are all to be engaged in the mission. This is what it says in verse 20. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the, one, the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by praying that Jesus is the Messiah. See, we're all to be engaged in the mission. It's the last thing we learn from this story. What does Paul do after, after, after he, he, he returns to full strength? He immediately begins to share his story about how Jesus transformed his life, which is exactly what God desires for you and I to do. The way that, that, that Wheel says it around here is, is, is simply this. When Jesus saved you, he also had someone else in mind. See, we all have, have people in our life that now we are to be on mission for. Jesus puts it this way uh, in Matthew chapter 28. This might sound familiar. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, and be sure of this. I am with you always. Friends, every single one of us, regardless of our profession, regardless of our age, regardless of our stage of life, as long as we have breath in our lungs, not, there's not one person that is exempt from this mission. And there is no better way to, to engage in this mission, in addition to us obviously living it out, that's by sharing our testimony. Which I know as I say that, some of you are like, Tom, I don't have a testimony. I used to hear that all the time. For the first 20 years of my ministry, I, I, was, I would speak at student events all over the country, conferences, festivals, whatever. And that was one thing I heard from students all the time is, I don't really have a testimony because I didn't really come from, from a life of partying. I didn't really come from, like, sleeping around. I didn't really live this whole crazy life. I just grew up in a, in a Christian home or I just kind of known Jesus since the time I was a little baby. And I would say to him, well, thank the Lord for that. Thank the Lord that... That's your story. We don't have to have this, this crazy story in order to come to Jesus. Now, if we did, praise God, because that's your story. And it's our job, regardless of what the story is, that, that we understand our testimony of, of, of what it, Jesus is doing in our life right now, because that's the most important thing. A lot of times we're like, hey, this is what Jesus did in my life way back then. Well, that's amazing. But hopefully you're experiencing Jesus in your life today. And that's what matters. Why? Because you're telling people how Jesus can make a difference in their life today. 
So let's focus on what he's doing in our life today and share that with people. Now, so how do you do it? I know that's another question. Well, Tom, how, how, do, I even, how do I do this? How do I share my story? How do I share my testimony? Well, here's, here's what I like, to, I like to tell people. When I, was, when I was young, I played basketball, not super well, but I did. It was back in when zone defense was, was, uh, was kind of a thing. And, and we were taught either a 2-3 zone or a 1-3-1 zone. Okay, that's what we were taught. Well, I'm going to invent a new zone for sharing our story. And it's the 1-1-3 zone. It would be horrible on a basketball court, but it's great for sharing your testimony. The first minute, you talk about um, what your life was like before knowing Jesus. And maybe that's, that's real short because you've kind of felt like you've known him a long time. That's okay. Next, next is how you met Jesus, how that happened. And then, and then that's a minute. And then three minutes talking about what's Jesus doing in your life right now and what difference is he really making in your marriage, in your friendships, in your day-to-day life. Because again, that's what matters. It doesn't have to be a minute, minute, three minutes. Maybe it's more like 30 seconds, 30 seconds, and 75 seconds. That's okay. Make up your own times. This isn't legalistic. The point is, is that you're engaged in the mission. And the amazing thing is, is that, like Jesus says at the end of Matthew 28 there, and surely know this, I'm with you always. We don't do it on our own. He's with us, and he helps us. At the beginning of my time, I mentioned that Jesus, or excuse me, that, that uh, Isaiah often would uh, actually come and become a transformer before my eyes. And after he was done being transformed, he would look at me and he'd say, Daddy, do you like what I've become? And I'd say, oh, yes, son, I love what you've become. And friends, there's nothing more important to the Lord, our Father, than when his sons and his daughters allow Jesus to transform our lives. And as we do before his very eyes, if we were to look up at him and say, Daddy, do you like what I've become. He would look at us and he'd say, oh, my son, my daughter, I love what you've become. And I love who you're continuing to become as we continue to journey down this road together. So as I close, as I close this morning, what's God saying to your heart? What's he saying to your heart? Maybe some of you, if you sat here, you've realized, you know what, Tom? I've never been transformed by the Lord. I've never given my life over to Jesus. But some of you, I believe, you're in here this morning and you're saying, that's what I want. The the world's not working. The joy that I was hoping to get from the world, it's not working. I desire to understand the love of a Savior. I, I desire to understand what transformation can look like in my life. That can happen this morning. On your, on your bulletins, you're handed in. There's a communication card. You can check, like, I want to make a decision for Jesus. Put that in the bucket on your way out, and we'd love to be able to connect with you and help you understand what does that look like in your daily life. This morning can be that morning. Maybe for some of you, it's, it's the reminder of, you know what? Man, I've had a tremendous amount of Ananias in my life, and I need to text them. I need to call them and thank them for the role that, that the way that God has used them to help me in my journey. Maybe for some, it's, it's that, man, I need a mindset of being an Ananias for another person. God, would, would you download those people in my brain? Let me put it on an Oikos card. Let me, let me begin to pray about it and really dream about how you could engage me in the mission of Christ. Regardless of where you're at today, friends, there's no greater example than the books, book of Acts chapter 9 to remind us of why Jesus came this, to this earth. And that's that he is in the transformation business. He wants to transform us and then use us in helping the transformation of others. Let me pray for us. Father, I want to thank you uh, for this word. God, I want to thank you for uh, the the power of of Saul's testimony that is such an encouragement to us. And I pray specifically for maybe the person or, or people that are sitting in this room and saying that they've always felt that they were too far gone. 
They looked at themselves that way. But God, I pray that this would have brought this new light into their own lives that says, I'm not too far gone. I've just been right on the edge, and this morning I can step over and I can make that decision. I can begin my journey with Jesus this morning. God, would you give them the courage to do that and, and, then, and, let, and let others know so that we can help them in that journey? God, I pray that whatever you're calling us to do, that we will do it. We won't leave that here. That's the temptation every Sunday when we come here is just to say, oh, that's a great word, and then we walk out. God, we don't want to do that. We not only just want to hear the word this morning, but we want to go out and do the word. And we know and we're so grateful that you're with us always to help us do what you're calling us to do. We love you, Jesus, and we're so grateful for the ability to gather, worship you, and to hear from your word this morning. In your name we pray, amen.